Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Things have gone over the last, I don't know, 12 hours or so. How I would have hoped for them to go. Late West Coast start for the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm not going to go to sleep, but you'd like it to be lower leverage sooner than later. The Jays with a pretty comfortable win against the Oakland Athletics, 7-1 to one, to make it three in a row that they've won now. They'll finish that series at 3.30 today. Uh, dicey for a little bit as they took a while to, well, they, I was going to say they took a while to get to Ken Waldachuk. They did not get to Ken Waldachuk at all. Uh, he left after six shutout innings, and then they got to the Oakland bullpen in a serious way. What also flowed from, you know, the last 12 hours or so going well, well, the Texas Rangers got obliterated by the Houston Astros again. So the Toronto Blue Jays woke up in a playoff spot this morning. You also have the ideal scenario for me personally, which is that Canada basketball, who are currently playing in the FIBA World Cup quarterfinals, are up comfortably enough right now that I'm not melting down doing this show while Canada looks to punch their ticket to the semifinals for the first time ever on the men's side. They lead Slovenia right now, 89-74 with seven and a half minutes to go. Uh, if you want to check that out, that is on over on Sportsnet. Our pal Dan Schulman and Alvin Williams on the call. The stakes of that one, Canada's already punched their Olympic ticket, but the World Cup is a bigger, more difficult, better tournament. And Canada has never on the men's side made the semifinals. They are about to do that. That is Pretty cool. They'll play Serbia on Friday and we'll do this whole dance again of can I do a Blue Jay show while keeping one eye on a Canada basketball game. Uh, thankfully, they are up 16 in the fourth quarter. So we're good there. Jays win 7-1. Within that, uh, a lot of good to pick from on the run prevention side, certainly. Chris Bassett with another really good start. He goes eight innings, only allows one earned run on seven hits, doesn't walk anyone, seven strikeouts. Uh, in the seventh, you know, they they put one on the board with a double and then a single. And then in the eighth, he got in a tiny bit of trouble, but managed to get out of it. And then Bowden Francis with a, an awesome ninth inning, strikes out the side. I know there aren't a lot of leverage opportunities for Bowden Francis because this bullpen is pretty deep as is, but uh, yeah. He has continued to pitch very, very well. And yeah, it's the Oakland Athletics, but if you're looking at Chris Bassett's performance this year, it hasn't been, you know, sometimes maybe it's felt like he dominates the the bad teams and then struggles against the good teams. I think that's just over 162, over 30 starts. That's how it feels for guys. This is the same Chris Bassett and Oakland matchup that Bassett lost earlier in the year and didn't pitch particularly well in. Um, Chris Bassett, though, if we look at starts, we can cut start quality. You know, I know quality starts exist. I tend to use game score from baseball reference, which grades every start zero to 150s average. Uh, I tend to look at the top third of them. So a game score 67 out of 100 or higher. And that to me is kind of not a quality start, but almost like a super quality start. It's a top one third of starts you could ask for. Uh, Chris Bassett is tied for fourth in Major League Baseball with 10 of those. 10 kind of very good, we'll call them, starts the only names higher than him are Luis Castillo, Spencer Strider and Zach Gallen. And he's tied with Max Scherzer for fourth. Again, that's not quality of competition inflated. There are some in there, but he's also got some against Atlanta, San Francisco, a pair against Houston. Um, yeah. Chris Bassett's been, been quite good. His ERA now down to three sixty nine, and maybe most importantly for the story of this blue Jay season, the way everything's gone, he is uh, sixth in major league baseball in innings pitched, which uh, with 173.1. So Bowden Francis only asked to get one inning there. Uh, the Jays 
were a little annoying on the hitting side for a little bit there. Ken Waldachuk going six shutout. The Jays did manage four hits and three walks off of them. They actually had 12 plate appearances against Waldachuk with men on base. They just didn't manage to bring any of them across. They saved up all that sequencing variance for the seventh inning uh, when the A's bullpen just walked Everyone, I think there were six total walks in that inning, a couple of singles, a David Schneider double. Poor Spencer Horwitz was made two of the outs in that inning. Um, and then, yeah, the Jays had an insurance in the eighth. All told, seven runs, pretty, even though it didn't happen until the seventh, that game went pretty smoothly. Uh, almost literally the only thing I could complain about the last 12 hours or so is how shiny my forehead looks today under these television lights. But uh, we deal with that. Maybe our next guest has some tips for me for that. Uh, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic joins us now. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good other than how shiny I am today, which is I think always the case, but I'm especially noticing it today maybe because uh, I'm looking up at the screen more because the Canada game's on. Any any yeah, tips for me there? Yeah, you got to get the powder, mm. um, you know, blot a little bit. It's probably because you're hot too. It's so hot today and maybe you're sweating. Oh, no, I turn the thermostat. I think coworkers dislike me. I, I turn the <laughs> thermostat down so low. It's the first thing I do when I get in the office in the morning. Um, anyway, so uh, it's also hot in Oakland right now and red hot is Chris Bassett over his last couple of starts. It looked like he'd maybe lost a little something or was struggling a little bit for maybe a four or five start stretch there. He had a couple games with four earned runs. Um, you know, the, the home runs have gone in and out against him. I know this isn't an Oakland team that is scoring a ton of runs and beating the doors off of teams, but to have this start on the tail of another six plus inning shutout start last time out where he gave them a lot of length and was just kind of, I mean, last started, there was, he almost didn't even miss bats. He was just like, here, here's some weak contact, have at it. Um, what have you made of these last couple of Chris Bassett starts and where your, I guess, confidence level is in him having rounded out of that mini slump he was in? Yeah, I think, you know, Chris Bassett is somewhat of a grinder. Like, I think that his calling card is giving you innings and grinding starts. And yeah, he's not a big strikeout guy. He really does rely on contact and weak contact. And I think with that probably comes some outings where the hits are going to fall. Yeah, the home runs are an issue and those are just going out. And, you know, he's probably given up more hard contact this year than maybe expected, maybe than he typically has. But I think that he's just such a, you know, experienced pitcher as well that I can almost chalk that up to the sort of normal, natural ebbs and flows that are going to happen in a pitcher's season. I think that there was nothing in those maybe down starts that was so highly concerning that I, it didn't seem like he was going to get it back. And I think that overall this season, if you look at the body of work, I think he's given you pretty much exactly what you thought you were going to get from him. I think he's been really reliable for the Blue Jays uh, from the most part to go pretty deep into games. I think you were saying in the lead in, like he's, near the top of um, the, the American League in the innings pitched or something, or he's mm -hmm. certainly... He's yeah. sixth in the majors and third in the AL. Okay, so yeah, like, and that's kind of exactly what you wanted from him. And I think that he's done a good job, and I think that he's been good at really just washing those bad starts. Again, that comes, comes down to his experience. And I think that probably right now, he's been on a lot of playoff races over his career. He kind of knows what you have to do at this time of year to really turn it on. And so, you know, maybe there was a little bit of just like dog days of August 
hitting him at the at the at that time and now that it's September or now that we're really into the stretch run you're seeing him kind of hit another level and I think he talked about also like his um approach this year and kind of conserving energy and he's doing things a lot differently this year than he did even in the past and the sense of you know maybe not long tossing the way that he typically would in years past because he wants to conserve energy. And so I think that maybe you're seeing the effects of that right now is he's probably hitting a good stride. He's kind of conserved um, those bullets a little bit for now. So that is very well said. And I think that's pretty accurate in terms of the energy conservation and just dealing with the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of a season. I do wonder though, Caitlin, when you look at how this, and this is looking a little ahead, but we get to do this question because the Jays are a half game up instead of a half game behind today. Uh, if you were looking ahead to say a wild card series, uh, look, we, we all know it's going to be matchup dependent. It's going to depend if you, you know, if you have to start Gosman and Barrios in the last two games of the season to make the playoffs, then you don't have a choice of what your rotation is, but let's assume the blue Jays have a choice. Um, the fact that with Chris Bassett, he leads your starting rotation and we're splitting hairs here because all five guys have been really, really good. Um, he leads your rotation in excellent starts, but that also means because he has a 369 ERA, he leads your rotation other than Alec Manoa in kind of shaky starts, not awful ones. He, he had two or three of those, but so did Gosman, you know, we, we've seen that, but he's, you know, he leads the team in those, Hey, kind of four or five earned runs over five inning kind of starts. Where do you come out on that in terms of what your confidence in him would be in a must-win playoff game where obviously he's shown the absolute upside and like you said, he, he's been there before more than anyone else in this rotation except for maybe Ryu, uh, but also he's been a little bit more blow-up prone because of the platoon split and home run issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think you're still probably going with like Gosman in any sort of game one situation, assuming that you have that choice. And then, yeah, you're going to lean on the matchups. I think that, you know, it's a interesting conversation between Rios and Bassett and Kikuchi. I think that to some extent you might want to see how September plays out. You want to ride the hot hand. I mean, Kikuchi had such a hot August, last couple of weeks of July. And then into August, he was, you know, we've t- talked about it a lot. He was the best pitcher in, in the American League, basically one of the best pitchers in all of baseball based on his ERA and other statistics. And so, but it, you know, he hasn't been as sharp lately. And so if that kind of trend continues into September, maybe he's taxed or whatever, whatever is happening with him if that continues on. Maybe you're not feeling as good now. Again, matchups would play a role. If you're facing a team that proven can't hit lefties, maybe you feel good about Katucci either way. I think with Bassett, like you go, you rely on the experience. He has had playoff starts um, in his career. They've been a bit of a mixed bag too. Last year with the Mets was well known, did not come through when they really needed him. I think he took that pretty hard, but I think he's also had some really good outings back in the day for Oakland. um, You know, when he was with that team and they were a really competitive team. So that is another factor. I've said this before and I remember it really clearly, the Blue Jays, you know, one of the reasons they cited for signing Chris Bassett was his playoff experience. And so when you say that, when you know what he can bring in the postseason, I think you have to take a long, serious look. But again, I think it's really going to depend on sort of the momentum of the rotation this month. And like you said, if the situation is such that, yeah, you have to use 
Gosman and Brugos just to get into the postseason, then yeah, your your choices are limited there. But I think if all things being equal, you know, I, I do think it's a really interesting debate probably between all three of Kikuchi, Bassett, and Brios, who would get two game two and game three. And that's not to mention Hyunjin Ryu, who will start today mm-hmm. and has gone five innings in five of his six starts. You know, they're being a little careful with, with the pitch counts and things like that. And obviously he's been very efficient. So um, that, that has kind of helped manage that on his own. When, when you look at Ryu, Caitlin, I know that you guys have written about it and we've talked about before how much he meant to this team in the early parts of this contract. Everyone liked him as a dude. He signaled so much about this front office and this team saying, hey, yeah, we're ready now. We're, we're going to try to compete now. Have you felt that around the team now that Ryu's back? I, I know he was physically around the team on and off kind of earlier in the season, but him being back and I guess, you know, not to contrast it too much to Manoa, but having a nice positive story in the rotation right now, like a Hyunjin Ryu, have you felt that impact on this team? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny because it's been such it's such a accomplishment to come back from Tommy John, his second Tommy John at his age and I think that he's been so like smooth that you almost kind of forget what he's doing, like you know what I mean? Like it's just been like it's so seamless a transition. There's been almost no signs of any sort of impact that the Tommy John could have had or the long layoff could have had. It's like he didn't miss a beat. And so on the one hand, yeah, it's a great story, but it's almost overlooked in some ways because you, you kind of forget. You're like, oh, yeah, he's just, he's just doing his thing. He's like vintage Rio out there. You don't even notice. Um, and so I've said before that I think it's really nice that he gets to presumably tie a bow on his Blue Jays uh, career this way. I don't know. Maybe they sign him to a one-year deal. Maybe that's possible. I'm not sure. I don't know what his plans are. I don't know if he wants to keep playing. Um, that's probably going to be something that we'll sort of talk about in the off season and, and maybe he'll say something before the season ends. I don't know, but just like on the surface, at least let's wrap up that four year deal that he signed that, like you mentioned, that fairly significant kind of um, shift shifting uh, contract that he signed for the blue Jays that sort of moved them from a rebuilding team to a team that was going to seriously start to contend or at least, um, you know, go down that path more seriously. And it took a few years from his signing on for them to get to the postseason, obviously, but he was a big part of that shift for the team and the team just sort of realizing, yep, we're going to be a contender now. We're going to, uh, we want to win. That's the goal here. So yeah, I think that it's been nice. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of good stories in the rotation too. Um, you know, Kikuchi, Gosman having another great year bounce back from Brios. Like we talked about Bassett having a good season as well. So there's, um, there's no shortage of good stories on the pitching staff just in general, but yeah, I think reuse has, has been really nice. It's been, it's been great. And you mentioned that the second Tommy John, you almost forget it's the second one. Like I'm digging around in some data for blue Jay central later today on him reintroducing the sinker. And it's like, Oh yeah, there's another big gap here in his major league data because uh, he had to go through this twice. Caitlin, you ever think what a coincidence it is that Tommy John had to have Tommy John surgery? No, I've never thought about that. Wild. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay. So, Caitlin, back to a serious bent. Uh, You wrote a terrific piece at The Athletic about Brandon Belt and his steady leadership in an uneven season. I know he hasn't played the last couple of days. The back flared up and then uh, something else flared up these last couple of days in Oakland for him. But big picture, I know this is a story you've been working on for a while. I know Brandon Belt is someone who... 
you know, you've been kind of fascinated by as a person and how he fits into this clubhouse. Um, what did you learn uh, about Brandon Belt and what he's meant to this Blue Jays team through reporting out that story? Yeah, one of the, you know, funniest things um, or one of the things I immediately noticed when I started doing this story, started working on it, is that as I would approach a player in the clubhouse or uh, the field or whatever, and I would just say the sentence, hi, can I talk to you? I'm writing a story on Brandon Bell. And immediately, like, a smile would go up on their face because they just mm-hmm. knew, like, they get to talk about Brandon Bell, and when you get to talk about Brandon Bell, you're just going to think about all the times he made you laugh or you're going to think about what a unique character that he is, and it's just going to put a smile on your face. And I think that's kind of um, symbolic of just the impact that he's had on this team. I think that he's... Um, a very unique leader because he's kind of a unique person. He has a very um, dry sense of humor that he uh, puts on display often. You know, you get used to his deadpan style pretty quickly, but it takes a, it takes a beat to figure out is he joking or is he serious? And usually with Bell, the answer is he's joking, um, even if he doesn't want you to tell. And, you know, I think that, yes, there's that side of him. And I think that the role of comic relief, the role of guy that, makes things light in the clubhouse is probably his most natural role because that's his personality. That's just who he is. He likes making people laugh. He likes to be that kind of guy, but I think that he also can have a serious side and that's sort of what I learned talking to guys is that he knows the moments to speak up. And I think that's the other thing with like leadership and veteran leaders is that maybe if they're constantly talking, um, especially throughout a season like this, that has been somewhat frustrating for the Blue Jays that maybe after a while the message doesn't get across. But I think if you really pick your spots, and my sense is that Brandon Bell has a really good feel for picking his spots and for being that kind of, for changing the tone a little bit and being a little bit more serious. And so when he talks, um, people listen. And and when he speaks, people want to hear what he has to say. And so I think that's another important role that he's had on the club. And I just think leaning on him, he's really calm. He doesn't panic himself. And I think that that sort of quiet, steady confidence um, bleeds out and affects other guys. Talking to like Dalton Varsho, for example, it's like Belt was sort of quietly giving him encouragement throughout that first half where he was really struggling and just having these like little conversations every day about approach and what pitches you should swing at and what you should do up at your bat. And not necessarily what Brandon Belt does is what everybody should do. He's obviously fairly unique in his style, but I think that just generally him having um, just so much experience and being able to talk to players about so many different experiences. And, you know, I got the sense he has a really great feel for the game. And I think right now it's really important that he's that voice for them because again, you know, he told me he remembers with those giant teams, like they needed to turn it on at the end of the year as well. And, you know, they, they had talented teams there. He believes in this group. And I think obviously, yeah, he hasn't been around the team for the last couple of days, I guess, nursing a bit of a stomach bug, but I think overall just his impact off the field has been huge. And then, you know, what you can say on the field, great bounce back season. He's, I got the sense he was really um, satisfied with the way that he's performed on the field just because of, you know, he was coming off knee surgery, coming off in a disappointing season, really didn't want to end his career on kind of a sour, sad note, just because he's had a great career over 13 years in the majors. And so I think just the way he's performed, he's done 
basically what the Blue Jays wanted from him and, and really been that sort of on-base threat that they needed at the top of their lineup. Yeah, you mentioned the, you know, hey, he didn't want to go out on a sour note and things like that. I always wonder how guys will handle something like this. Like, he's he's 35, which is oldish for a baseball player, but he's mostly a DH. And I don't know, do you look at it at the end of the season and say, well, I had a 134 WRC+. I was 35% better than league average. Uh, I'm only 35. I can do this again. Or do you say, you know what? I, I got to look at what it could look like to not go out on my own terms and now I'm going out on my own terms obviously that uh Caitlin that would be a much different conversation if he's also going out with a third world series ring which uh, (laughs) I think he's hoping for here so Brandon Belt a big leadership component you had another terrific feature earlier in the year about Matt Chapman and the leadership component that he brings some of this is going to be just age and experience some of it is going to be it just if the Jays can make a, a deep playoff run here. But when you look at the leadership side of this team and you see a belt and a Chapman kind of at the forefront of the leadership group, and both of those guys are free agents at the end of the year, um, how, I guess not how, because this is something we we can't really put our fingers on, but what are you watching for in terms of figuring out if other guys are absorbing how to be that next wave of leader if belt does retire and Chapman signs elsewhere in free agency? Yeah, I think the Blue Jays are well set in in that regard. And it's not necessarily like Chapman's, both Chapman and Bell are very unique individuals. Um, Both bring a different sense of humor to the team. Um, Chapman is like high energy. Uh, Bell is sort of more like steady, low energy, but they're present all the time. And, you know, they're, they're very different the way they lead. And the Blue Jays have some guys that are going to lead in a different way too. Bo Bichette's a name that, Maybe he doesn't get mentioned enough as a leader, maybe because people still see him as a fairly young player, and he is in terms of age, but he is, what, five seasons into his career at this point? So I think that, um, you know, he does it in his own way. He's quiet. He's not a loud guy. He's kind of an observer. But Bo is really great at talking to guys. I think he's really great at, observing hitting specifically and you know i've talked to guys about Bo, and the thing with Bo is that he understands hitting in a very sort of simplistic his own way and he's uh, i think people have said this about him like he's like a hitting savant it's like he just he just gets it um you know that maybe comes from his dad maybe comes from just the way that he learned baseball whatever it's something that comes very natural to him but i think he's also pretty good at delivering that information in a simple way because he digests it in a simple way. I've heard that from guys and that's kind of an impact that he can have. And, you know, there's, there's other guys on this club that can lead in their own way. I think Kevin, well, he's not maybe an everyday player. He's a guy that, um, you know, considers himself a leader and he's, you know, does it with the way he plays and the way he prepares. I think that having some of those guys on the team have, has probably been good to learn a little bit for those younger guys on the team, like how to lead the way at the end of the day, they're going to do it their own way though. No one's going to replace Chapman's kind of high energy. No one's going to be able to replace, you know, the witty humor that belt brings like they're pretty unique guys. But I think, um, you know, the rotation and the pitching staff, again, that's going to pretty much be the same next year. And you've got a really strong leadership group in the bullpen, you know, with Romano and Misa and, and those guys and then Gosman and, and Bassett really lead the way with the rotation. And, you know, I think the the position player, yeah, there's going to be some turnover there. You know, a guy like Witt's 
potentially not going to be on the team. There's going to be a bit of a changing of guard. And I think there's probably going to be some younger players. Maybe it's a Spencer Horowitz joining the team on a more everyday basis. And Davis Schneider certainly looks like he's earning himself a job for next year. And so then, yeah, you're going to look at guys like Bo and Kevin and Vlad to kind of lead the way in their own unique way. Well, Caitlin, uh, when you mentioned a couple of those names there, I was going to do the whole, well, who's going to be out of playing time when uh, Bo Bichette's back later this weekend thing with you? But we are just about out of time uh, with you. Uh, are you excited for, I guess, the Royals this weekend, but looking ahead to this Rangers series next week that, hey, could that's basically a play-in series kind of with the way the standings look right now and how Texas is kind of free-falling? Yeah, I think it's going to be really important what the Blue Jays do over these next four games. If they are going into a series uh, against the Rangers, having won six of their last seven or off seven in a row, going back to the Rocky series, and then you have the Rangers who you know are free-falling. I know that they still have a few games in between now and when they'll see the Blue Jays, but they're getting you know kind of killed by the Astros right now. They have not been playing well, and I think that, going to be really important for the Blue Jays to be riding into that series, feeling good about themselves, riding the momentum. Yeah, sure, it's coming against some last place teams, but you know what? That doesn't matter right now. I think that if they can be riding the hot hand, if they can be kind of feeling good about themselves, those four games at home against Rangers are going to be huge. And I really think like the the status of the team or however you want to put it, the mood of the team, the vibes on the team are, are going to play a factor in that series. Well, yeah, we'll we'll see if they're heading in hot and Texas is heading in cold. Maybe that's a, I don't know, maybe that ups the urgency for the Rangers, but that certainly hasn't helped them uh, lately against Houston. Although Texas also has the series against Oakland on the weekend to get right. Caitlin, I will see you down at the park at some point. Thanks for taking the time out this morning. Of course. Thanks for having me. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Terrific piece on Brandon Belt, his leadership and what he's meant to this team up at The Athletic Right now, uh, Brendan Belt has not played the last couple of days, which has opened up more playing time for Spencer Horwitz and for David Schneider and Ernie Clement, who are getting some run here because Bobachet and Matt Chapman remain sidelined. Uh, Danny Jansen also sidelined. We expect Belt back uh, any time now, stomach depending. But in the interim, uh, while Bobachet and Matt Chapman and day-to-day Brendan Belt are out, there have been real opportunities for some Buffalo Bisons to come up from AAA and contribute to the major league team in a major way. What is helping drive their success? Why are these guys coming up so ready to have major league quality at bats? Let's take a break. Let's talk to Matt Haig, the Buffalo Bisons hitting coach and Blue Jays swing consultant. See what he thinks about uh, a trio of his boys having some real success for the Blue Jays this year. Bison's hitting coach Matt Haig joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays win last night 7-1. to one. If you liked the offense in the 7th and 8th innings of that game where the Jays put up all of their 7 runs, you may have enjoyed the Buffalo Bisons game. They scored despite the Blue Jays poaching some of their best hitters. The Bisons put up a 12 spot yesterday. Big contributions from Rafael Antigua, Damiano Palmegiani, 
Jason Barger, Cam Eden, a bunch of other names. That Bison's team has been hitting like crazy the last little while, has them on the periphery of the playoff picture in the International League, and they've been able to graduate a couple of guys to the Blue Jays who've been able to contribute at the plate. Uh, What is going into that success? How are the Blue Jays producing some pretty major league-ready bats, at least in small samples? Matt Haig. Buffalo Bisons hitting coach and Blue Jays swing consultant joins us now to help us figure it out. Matt, I got to ask you first, man. Can you fix my swing? <laughs> Blake, I got to start us off by saying thanks for having me on here. Uh, and I got to give you a couple shout outs, man. I, uh, I listen to your guys' podcast a lot. And I enjoy y'all, y'all's perspective. So um, as far as the swing, I have no idea. You got to send me some videos. I, uh, <laughs> We uh, we got to check that out, but no, I appreciate you having me on here and, and send me some videos. We'll we'll check it out. Have a little dialogue. <laughs> All right, as I, there there will be an NDA though that you can't show the videos because I, I host a baseball show and no one needs to see uh, that slow pitch swing. Uh, so Matt, hey, you are the Bison's hitting coach, but for anyone who doesn't know, you also were in the Blue Jays organization at one point. I do want to talk about some of these AAA guys and some of the success stories there, but I wanted to give the the audience a little bit of your background as well. Uh, if anyone remembers the the 2015 season. Kind of a memorable season around here. You were up with the team uh, that September. What do you remember about your your time with the Blue Jays? Uh, yeah, I remember just good people. I mean, I had um, – I, I think I consider myself really lucky that season because I think I had the uh, one of the easiest jobs in baseball, sitting back watching all those guys um, go about their craft, you know, all the, the big names that were on that team. Um it was a it was an amazing group of guys, highly competitive, really tough at bats, um, and I spent a lot of my time just kind of picking a lot of their brains and how they go about it. Um, those guys are extremely gifted, and I'll, I also have to I have to ask this question. I heard uh, kind of the introduction song mm-hmm. as this thing was warming up was Leonard Skinner's "Simple Man," and that was actually my plate song in 2015 when I walked up. So was that by design or is that just kind of coincidence right there? That was, that was by design, man. I got my little iPad okay. out too and doing the, the, the prep work and the advanced scout and everything like that. Um, so I, I'm glad, uh, glad you noticed it. Um, so also that 2015 year curious about, I, I know I'm sure it was great for, you know, learning it and absorbing, like you said, from those top players, I also wonder what it was like and how this can, you know, especially now that you're at the AAA level, help you with certain player types that are down there. You were coming off an MVP season at the AAA level. You had a pretty good track record of succeeding at the high levels of the minors, but you hadn't really gotten a major league chance with any consistency. And you were kind of in this pinch hitter specialist role. Um, What do you remember about that role? And does that come up and, you know, the way you had to prepare and stay ready in that role inform some of how you're helping guys stay ready now yeah that's a really good question so i think like right i was in that role rightfully so um these guys that were ahead of me are extremely athletic and um if i'm being honest and self-reflecting through that role that i had those guys um were just ahead of me so i had to prepare myself mentally for whenever my name was called, what was going on game planning wise. Um, and, I, and I think, I mean, pinch hitting, as you all know, it's a, it's a different beast. You know, you're facing the guys in the back end that are, have two plus pitches usually that 
are highly executed and you know, they're going to throw it. Um, but it's just trying to eliminate certain pitch profiles on what you really know that you can't hit. And I think that was one thing when I was with the blue Jays, um, they help you prepare for those, those roles. Um, and then it's just this constant process of learning given the role that you're in. But I mean, those guys, um, you picked up a lot of stuff that they were, they were doing and made them successful, whether you could do it or not. Um, you played with it. Um, but it just highly athletic guys that knew what they were doing. And I think that was my time with the blue Jays. That was one of the things I really gravitated towards how they prepare. Um, and then how they execute based on what they're facing that day. So you also, whether in the Jays system or around baseball, you know, before you got to Toronto, after you were back from your stint in Japan as well, um, always had pretty high walk rates and fairly low strikeout rates. And that's something that, you know, swing decisions is a, is a buzzy term now, but you can look at strikeouts and walks and kind of approximate that. Um, is that like how much of that is innate and how much of that is something you were constantly actively working on when you're in the minors because I'd imagine it's something that you know once you're a 30 year old and you've been in AAA a little bit it's maybe a little easier but you had that from a a pretty young age in your minor league profile yeah it was something I always valued when I was younger Um, and then I think like just the whole bucket uh, for me personally and my individual skill set I knew that I wasn't uh, crazy athletic moving like most of the guys that are up there now. And um, it's under the idea of you kind of got to eliminate certain zones, certain pitches, um, and you can't cover everything. So you're trying to eliminate stuff so you can take advantage of when it shows up in your tunnel. Um, And I was strong enough and I was physical enough to where I could um, muscle some balls out. But my bread and butter was, trying to get on base. Um, it was just kind of, I think it's the environment that I was brought up in, um, especially even um, just from a very young age. And with each system and each organization, they kind of hone down on, on different value systems. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of like a blessing and curse, right? You're, you're trying to eliminate certain stuff, but at the same time it can turn into some passiveness or maybe lack of, uh, intent, which could translate into some extra base hit opportunities, but you're always trying to like risk and, or you're trying to assess risk and, um, you know, value in certain situations. So I, I think like that was kind of my mindset. Um, uh, I think just the guys nowadays, and you've kind of seen this like last four or five years, a different trend and guys can kind of do it all now. If, if brought up in the, um, right movements or the right, game planning environments. These guys are athletic and highly specialized now. So it's kind of a, um, a bit that era that I guess I've played in. It wasn't that long ago, but it, it's changed dramatically on guys just specializing and be able to physically be capable of doing it all. So. And, and now you're a part of building that into, into Blue Jays guys. So 2020, you join the organization at the A-ball level, or you're supposed to, and then the pandemic happens, and then uh, you know, you're know you in double-A after not too long, and now you're at triple-A. Um, how cool has it been for you to, I mean, first of all, kind of find yourself on the coaching side, but also because you've moved through the organization fairly quickly, you've kind of gone with a couple of these guys level by level. 
Right. Yeah. It's, it's been a, it's been an awesome opportunity. You know, it's, um, after you play, you kind of don't know what's going to happen. Um, some guys reach out to you and you start this process of learning, um, you know, and, and I think one of the biggest things that I challenge myself with is um, these players are going to latch on to different things, and it's not necessarily what you did in your career. You want to be open-minded enough to where you, just, you can kind of meet the player where they're at and cater to them at whatever style or whatever, uh, whether we're talking about biomechanics or game planning or swing stuff or approach-wise. There's all these different uh, areas as a coach, you try and push yourself on, right? And it's this process of continually trying to grow. And when you kind of move up with the with some of the players for a couple of years, you can um, really specialize. You can kind of check some things off and move on and continue to um, develop these guys. And I've had the opportunity to spend some time with a lot of these guys that are up in the uh, upper levels now. And it's been a fun process working through with them. Um, you know, the, the development system that we have is, is extremely good and we're getting better each year and we're specializing each year. So I think like overall, uh, as a coach, you learn a lot about yourself, but you get to learn with the players and meet them with where they're at and continue to help them grow. And, and you're using your experiences, but you're also understanding that they're in a different, they could be in a different mind frame. They could view things differently. And uh, it's just this process to keep growing together, not even just coach or individual base. Everyone's trying to grow together and, and um, truly develop. Really. So you guys have had a, a couple of success stories this year, and hopefully that ends with, you know, playoff berth for you guys. I know you're in a tight race here and the offensive side is clicking. Um, obviously, you know, developmentally, you're going to be measured at the end of the day by the impact those guys have on the major league team. And you guys have quote unquote lost a trio of players to the Blue Jays over the last little bit. Um, when you see Ernie Clement, David Schneider, Spencer Horwitz go up to the major league level, um, obviously you're, you're rooting for them and you deal with that. What is the process like in terms of you keeping an eye on those guys and your continued communication with those guys you know obviously there are hitting coaches and strategists at the major league level but I'd imagine you at this point are probably the person in the organization most familiar with their approach and their swings and things like that yeah and and um you know those are my guys like we've we've especially with um Horwitz and Schneider um we've really grown to trust each other and really value each other. Um, and Bernie, yeah, he, it's his first year in an organization, but there were some things that I don't know if you got a chance to talk to him, but they're all extremely good people. They're good hearts. They care about people. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a coach's responsibility, I would say to, uh, help them grow, but understand when, why, at what times. And, um, yes, we, are always rooting for them, but there's also really good communication between the AAA level and big league level. So I think, um, yes, I'm familiar with them, but that information is passed along. We got a, we got a group of really good coaches. Um, and whenever these guys get called up, you know, I, we write out some stuff that has worked for them in the past. And I mean, for like the transition from the AAA to big leagues, like even when they go up there, the players are usually fighting, or battle the same tendencies. They're not like making up 
newt uh, deficiencies as they move up. It's usually around the same thing. So I think just the communication, as long as it's tight um, and they're prepared and they're continuing to do the things that had them, had them have success at those levels, it's, um, it's a pretty cool story to watch those guys go up there and do what they're doing now. Uh, and they're extremely easy to root for. And it's one of those scenarios where those three guys, uh, they were a big part of our, our Bison's team. And when the game's on and we're not playing, everyone in the team is watching the games and rooting them on. So it's a very close-knit, those three guys uh, together as well, but just as a, as a team and experience they had with everybody. So it's been, it's been an amazing experience watching those guys go up there and do what they're doing. So with respect to Spencer Horwitz and David Schneider, guys, you've spent a lot of times, uh, a lot of time with, you know, Horwitz has kind of been this guy. He's been established as a good plate approach guy, a good contact hitter, a guy who could take a walk. David Schneider, you know, took a little bit longer to kind of find his bat in the minors. It sounds like, and feels like, um, what do you attribute their ability to come up to the majors and have, you know, major league quality approach at the plate too. that. That's, you know, we we've heard from scouts at times and people within organizations on the show that the gap has, the jump has never been larger from AAA to the major yeah. leagues. And you've got a pair of guys here who in Schneider and Horwitz had this really good approach, had this good plan of attack, and they have been able to translate it to the majors so far. What do you attribute that to? Oh man. Okay. I think we can go a lot. We can go a lot of different ways with this. I, I, so I think generally speaking, it's the way they move the barrel um, at, and at what rate. So I would say um, even when both those guys got to double A, they have a launch. So the way they move the barrel, um, they over time with some refinement, um, they can eventually um, learn to cover any fastball fastball profile with how they move it so i would say it's um the way they launch and then how they move i think like some people when they see schneider and horwitz they think simple swing and my in my eyes i view it as it's not necessarily simple but it's extremely stable and controlled and then they possess a launch to where they can um cover really any fastball type of profile and then rely on certain movements to buy time or extend their move to help adjust with different uh, pitches off the fastball. So I think it's like there's, you know, as a coach, you identify when I was with these guys in double A, say, okay, they have the launch um, over time. Typically you see doesn't fail, even when it's, pushed against its limits and really good pitching. Um, and then you're over time, you're trying to identify what they do really well against what, and then it's this gradual process of checking boxes, right? So when Hunter, or oh gosh, sorry, Hunter's my dog up there uh, <laughs> and the assistant coach, I, I think like in double a, when you're with these guys who identify the fastball profiles and then, uh, with Spencer when he was there, it was velo and cutters in. And over time, these guys get ingrained through environmental practices and um, dialogue that comes with it. And over time, they kind of can check all the boxes on it. And Schneider was fastballs up. Um, that was the main focus. And just gearing their work towards to where 
they can cover everything based on the launch that they have. Um, and Schneider, I mean, I don't think it's a secret. I think everybody in the league knows everybody has the same information. Uh, different guys have different attack plans and Schneider's had a ongoing process of covering true carry fastballs up and it's just how they work and they, and they want to get better. So I think over time as a coach and sorry for this is the long, the long answer to the question. Um, but they continue to work on it. They know what they need to work on and they continue to improve and there's still always going to be a hole and everybody always has holes, but it's, can they cover it and are they prepared? So yeah, it's a long answer to that. Sorry, man. Please never apologize for a long and detailed answer on this show. If you come on in the future again, it, it's great information. And, and you know, I, I know like, look on this show, we try to be, you know, more analytic minded and look at, at some of that stuff, but there's some stuff that you know, we, we can't put ourselves in two, three years of spending time with these guys and evaluating the launch and the swing and stuff like that. It's really helpful information uh, to hear curious now, Matt. So those are guys you've worked with for a while. Ernie Clement comes into the organization kind of at the last minute this year. And, you know, he is not a guy, and I don't mean this in any offense to him. It's just the way the numbers have gone really hadn't hit at any level of the minors there. There was a moment in high a ball back when he was first a prospect, but otherwise he'd been a glove first guy. And I, I talked to him a couple weeks ago when he was still down with you guys about what's kind of went into him unlocking some stuff offensively. And he said it was a lot of, you know, mentality side stuff for him. Were there things with Ernie that when he got to you guys, you'd identified or you guys had identified as, Hey, we think we can do this a little better with you or this a little different with you. Like, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at with this is Ernie has attributed it mostly to the mental side and plan of attack and things like that. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Were there also swing things that, that you guys were able to do to, to unlock some, some more bat to ball stuff with Ernie? Yeah. I, I, so I, I think it, it, it um, boils down to the person too, right? Ernie is an amazing guy. He is always loved. And with that, um, comes the chance and opportunity to dissect, Hey, like in the past, this is what's been going on with you. Two seams, two seams, you beat everything on the ground. Here's the numbers. So providing like reasoning with it, you know I mean? He's always been able to cover like fastballs, true carry fastballs up. Um, and being able to like refine his sights, he kind of reminds me of, um, it's kind of the same idea as when I was with uh, Gabriel Moreno in double A, right? Um, he can make contact with the best of them, like elite. And it's being able to help him understand when it gets exaggerated. So with the high contact is usually like a blessing and curse. We'll try and make contact with everything. So I think like to what he's speaking of, yes, a lot of it is game planning. And because the contact's so elite, being able to help him and provide information on being able to when it gets exaggerated to where the contact becomes less quality. Um, so helping him with like the game planning side and I hundred percent agree with him, but also understanding, Hey, what are, what are some of the swing tendencies that break down? Um, like I said before, two seams he beat in the ground. What's the two seam uh, down in the zone, what's it taken away from your swing? So for him, it usually takes away his depth of his path. So um, just basically cutting it out front. So understanding that when this 
when this profile comes up, hey, dude, this this profile in the past has he beaten everything on the ground? Let's understand. Let's maybe try and think a little differently, and then push that box with him. And because he is such a good guy, and it, I think it all comes down to the will of the player. He wanted to be very good. Um, so a combination of game planning, depth in his path, and being able to control certain positions for a touch longer, nothing crazy. And he's just a, a dude that always wants to get better. And it's, I think it's kind of the same characteristic trait with all three of those guys. Those guys want to be really good, and they do want to impact people, and they care about others. So it's an easy conversation to have as long as there's reasoning and true objective um, numbers and information provided on how it's going to help them benefit and get to where they want to be. So I think like bringing it all in, meeting the player where they're at and what they kind of do. And it's, uh, it's been fun to watch him work throughout the whole year. And he's a guy that's extremely self-aware too. If he feels something off and go, Hey, what you got for me today, Ben? And then we have a, a, a conversation and it's easy flowing. It's, it's good um, dialogue, and we're, we know we're there to um, ultimately help him in his career, and I think they trust me with that, too. So it was a really good, fun um, conversations with all those guys, including me. That's it's really interesting to hear. And I, I think it's super well said in terms of, you know, hey, the the mechanical stuff, the swing evaluation stuff, the data, where does all that kind of come together? And it's that communication level with the player where you can help them, but they know they can help themselves and there's buy in there as well. Um, Matt, I could keep you all day. I, I know I got to let you go here shortly. I, I got I have to ask, though, um, the swing consultant part of your job title on the Jays front office page. Yeah. What, what goes into that? Did you like, did you guys sit there and you were like, Hey, I'm, I'm the hitting coach, but also I'm helping other parts of the org. What could we call this? I'm not sure I'd seen someone listed as a swing consultant before. Okay. There's this, uh, I've had this question asked a lot. So okay. I would think about it along the lines of there's so much information out there. I mean, we got the, the blue Jays have, dumped a massive amount of money and being able to understand everything biomechanically swing path wise. So I would think about it in terms of um, collecting and being um, relative to the information and trying to dissect it for the player to understand and meet them where they are. Um, I enjoy all the nerding out of, of the technology side of things and then trying to understand it. But it's there can at times be a gap on why it's relative to the player. And I think understanding all of the numbers, all the information, and then providing an action plan towards it and helping refine it on what we view. Why do we view it? Why is it important? When are they going to use it? Like that type of thing. Um, and then a lot of it's programming off of the stuff that we use and making sure that the players are provided information to maybe if we do need to make a change, they understand why and being able to kind of um, continually push them in ways and understanding that we're never done growing. Um, and everything that we got is with all the resources that we have and um, the blue Jays development in a way, trying to shoot uh bullet holes in a lot of the ways we think about it. Um, just trying to proof, I guess, proofread and, and, and try and really understand everything that we're going to use because there's so much out there and trying to refine it. So I would think about it in regards to like that way. 
little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, Matt, I could, uh, like I said, I could keep you all day, but I got to let you go here. I'm past my allotted time with you. Uh, thanks so much for taking uh, the time out, man. I'm uh, really looking forward to this playoff race for you guys down in Buffalo. Yes, sir. I appreciate you, man. Good, good having me on here, and uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Matt Haig the hitting coach for the AAA Buffalo Bisons and a swing consultant in the entire Blue Jays organization. That Buffalo Bisons team, by the way, is now only a game back in the International League East Division. They've been very hot for the entire second half of the season. They are just lapping the league in run differential. Uh, They're scoring a lot. They're doing a better job preventing runs. At some point, they're supposed to get Alec Manoa in the mix. Lately, it's been uh, guys like Andrew Bash and, and Mitch White getting it done on the starting pitching side. But it's really about the bats down there, even as they've graduated a trio of guys to the Toronto Blue Jays. They will, at some point, get one of those players back, maybe multiple of those players back. We're expecting Bo Bichette back this weekend, possibly as early as Friday. There was not the same update on, on Matt Chapman, but either way, that Buffalo team, uh, always worth checking the box scores for your prospecting. But uh, yeah, if the schedule lines up and you get to fire up the old MILB TV, they're only a game out uh, game behind Durham right now. So it uh, should be a fun stretch run for them. They've won eight in a row right now. So thanks to Matt Haig for coming on. And uh, yeah, if you were listening to the show and you cared, you were probably watching it on TV as well or, or checking your phone for updates. But if you missed it, Canada ended up beating Slovenia. So they will play at, get this, 4.45 a.m. on Friday in the semifinals of the FIBA World Cup. The first time ever the Canadian men's basketball team has made the semis at the World Cup. Uh, the women have finished third twice and fourth once, most recently uh, in 2022. So the men have already made history on the men's side, but a chance to make all of Canadian basketball history as well. Uh, and that game doesn't overlap with my show. So I'll just get in here for 4.45 in the morning and I'll just be on like coffee number four when I join you guys then. Uh, joining us after the break is going to be Chris Black. He'll be in studio for the second hour here as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Fun conversation with Matt Haig. Uh, Buffalo Bison's hitting coach. I could have kept him for a lot longer, but you're not supposed to do that when you get guests on from the Toronto Blue Jays organization. And Chris Black was waiting. Chris Black, Sportsnet producer, joins us now at Down to Black on Twitter for all your stats and video breakdown threads. And in a, a nice seafoam hoodie today. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Um, I'm back home now. No more road trips for the year. It was busy August. Don't say uh, that. You don't know how deep a playoff run these guys are going to go on. That's true. But I am, I am the secondary producer so playoffs yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to being at home and diving into blue jays but i am working uh casey in texas really looking forward to that texas series for obvious reasons so yeah looking forward to it yeah texas uh not doing particularly well right now outscored 27 to 7 over these first two games against the astros i was uh i was actually so i'm, I'm doing something on the rangers bullpen on blue jay central a little later today i've got some stuff on the ryu sinker as well which you and i kind of talked about on here a yeah, couple times did. like is it a sinker yeah. they're not classifying it as a sinker and it's guess what it's a sinker now um the rangers bullpen is dead last in blown saves their bullpen is second to last in home runs per nine only oakland's is worse 
Uh, they're bottom five in ERA. They're third last in high leverage OPS allowed. Uh, and they have like a 43% meltdown rate, like meltdown versus shutdown. That love is, that stat. I love that. Stat, yeah. By the way, the versus shut, saves yeah, the or blown saves. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really helpful. Yeah. And they, they're bad at all of them. And this is a team that added two relievers at the deadline and added two starters thinking that it would help bump guys to the bullpen. I guess I, I don't want to, you know, do the whole look at someone else's page thing since the gap is only half a half a game. But I do wonder before we get into Jay's stuff, how much you have, how much your opinion of this Texas Rangers team and how that shapes up for this remaining wildcard race has changed with them dropping, I think, 15 of their last 18 now. Yeah, even a couple of weeks ago, like, uh, I guess, like, post-deadline, they got really hot, I feel like, uh, maybe early August. Um, I never really, I always viewed them in the lower tier of, there's always been, there's always going to be, you know, seven Seven, six of these seven teams were going to make the playoffs. And if you just kind of rank those seven teams in terms of who you thought could go deep, no matter where they were in the standings, I always had Houston at the top and nothing. I don't care where they finish, even when they're struggling. If they make the playoffs, I view them as my AL favorite just for a variety of reasons. If Jose Altuve is going to hit a home run in every plate appearance, they're going to be, they're going to be a tough out. Yeah. Like you just, you trust the lineup, you trust Mm -hmm. the starters. Look, The biggest flaw we could pick at with them heading into the deadline was, Ooh, they're kind of righty heavy. And then it's like, Oh, and they got Jordan Alvarez back. And yeah, exactly. Jordan is like the ultimate, but also like, and you and I have talked about this a couple of times over the years. Like I don't really care about left, right to, to a certain extent, like it's just give me nine good hitters and yeah. I'll and I think you'll be okay. And I think they've proven that over the last ten years or whatever. I, um, I think we've settled on the five percent yes. rule. Yeah, where yeah, yeah if yeah, uh, if a player is more than five percent better, then you don't care about the handedness. If it's within five percent, then maybe you can get there with lineup versatility and matchups and bullpen decisions and things like that. But yeah. any more than that, you're you're maybe overthinking just having the best guys. For sure. And with Texas, the other thing is like I do subscribe to the there's no, I don't think there's any data to back this up, but I subscribe to the like, you know, you're going to do better your second time around in this experience. And I know some of their players individually have postseason experience, but I do, that's why I like Houston. That's why I don't think this is Baltimore's year. Um, and that's why I do think if Toronto gets in, why they've got a shot because they have gone through it. There's been these incremental gains over the years. And that's, but yeah, Houston, I really like. Texas is on the lower end of that scale. So that's always kind of where they've been over the last month for me. Okay. So this Toronto Blue Jays team has been there before, and we're going to do our usual get into the minutia stuff, but we'll maybe save that for the the second half of the hour. There's, there's some stuff from last night's game that, that we can get into set up today's this afternoon's game with Hyunjin Ryu against JP Sears. Maybe we'll have a lineup out by, by the end of that segment. But um, you mentioned that this team has been through it before and there have been these incremental gains. I think that's a natural point to Discuss the Twitter thread you had yesterday, which was kind of, I'm going to give you a chance to explain it here in a sec, but going, you know, for anyone who didn't see it, it was kind of a, just a thinking out loud about why this season has kind of felt very up and down emotionally, sometimes contentious on social media or, you know, on Jay's talk here in our text line and things like that. And there's an element of that where, you know, this is very different from 2015 where things kind of happened quickly and the trade deadline was chaotic. It's different from 2013 where the expectations and the moves had been similar, but it was so clear from the very get-go that it was going to be a disaster <laughs> that you could kind of check out. It's, it's 
different in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, when you get to a, a year where Bobochet and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are both now, you know, just two more years of control without extensions, there is a clearly defined window when you have young star players under control. And Hyunjin Ryu was your first big bet, and he's in the last year of his contract and things like that. So, you know, maybe the expectations or the excitement, however you want to frame it, has kind of grown over the years and that's in a way that it's supposed to you know as a team gets better and kind of gets past the innocent climb as pat riley called it those expectations are real and you're supposed to feel that as fans as well um but when you tie all of those things together and the fact that last year while an incremental step forward was pretty disappointing and that technically the next incremental step would be just win a playoff game. You could lose in three games in the wild card and it would be incrementally better. Um, You're so I I guess I'll just kick it to you to kind of reflect on that thread you posted yesterday and why you think this year has been so fascinating as a Blue Jays team and fan base and Blue Jays media. Yeah. I always just, I like observing this stuff. I like what's the tone, what's the tenor, not just on social media. Cause I do think, that doesn't always give us an accurate reflection <laughs> of the real world. Um, but, yeah, like uh, the term you use there uh, with Riley, the innocent climb, mm-hmm. I that's a great term. And I think that applies to the early parts of the Biggio or Bichette Guerrero era, like, perfectly. Um, and, yeah, like most of my threads, as you know, online are analytical and here's the numbers or here's a breakdown. Here's a video. This wasn't that like, this was like just a feel that I've got. You, you don't have numbers on like no, the number of FUs per tweet and <laughs> yeah. things like that. Yeah, exactly. But it was, yeah, it's just, uh, there's something changing and it's not just about the team underperforming. This isn't just about runners in scoring position. This isn't just, and one of the things that I mentioned is we've been, we as a fan base, and I include myself among that, like we collectively as Toronto sports fans have been wondering and hoping and watching box scores about Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for six or seven years now. And we've got a couple more years left. And I think that's kind of unique to baseball. This isn't, it's different. Um, we've like, they're a part of, we all watch box scores. I don't know if box scores are just more readable than an NHL game log. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can put it to you this way, too. When you draft or sign a Major League Baseball player, you've got five years before they have to be on your 40-man before they get exposed. And then they have six, often seven years of control. And if they're up and down in the minors, that can extend. Like, you could be in your third. Like, David Schneider might be 30 by the time he reaches free agency. In basketball, you got a four-year contract to start. And if you're not contributing by, like, year two, you're, like, on your last legs. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, look at Malachi Flynn to draw a parallel, right? Like, he's heading into his third season, and it's like, oh, oh my goodness, like, how how is he still on the team? And you compare that to baseball where, like, yeah, the equivalent in baseball, maybe in hockey at this point, you're probably on the last part of your ELC, and you're expected to be a AHL to NHL shuttle guy. In baseball, you might still be down in, like, high A ball. Yeah, and I feel like there's something unique about the timing of it all, of... 15 happening and being that lightning bolt to the fan base. And then 16, like, it happened. It was a good season, but we also kind of knew it was all ending after that. But then right after that, to have Bichette and Guerrero ascending so quickly right in 2017, and, like, the Major League program was just kind of waiting for those two guys, and that's become what we've been waiting for. So we've been waiting for this. We were expecting it. 2020 felt early. 2021 felt like the year 
2022, there's all sorts of enthusiasm. And then it came crashing down in <laughs> 36 hours. And then again, this year, like we, once the changes happened, we had this kind of all these exciting changes and we're like, is this the year they win a division and take a step up? It hasn't happened. Like those ebbs and flows of the frustrations of the season are one thing, but the, I think it has to do with knowing that the end of the road is coming at least to a certain degree. And like seeing guys like Schneider and Horwitz and all that, like makes us all a little more enthusiastic about 25 and 26 and, and all that. But yeah, it's just been, it's been an interesting dynamic to, to watch and observe. And as I said, not just social, I was in, we took the kids to Boston pizza before, uh, before school started earlier this week. And just seeing there was a, this is a quick little story, but there was a runner on first Vladimir Guerrero jr. Hit a base hit where the runner was not going past second. And the, this group of older gentlemen, like we're yelling at the screen at Vladdy for not running hard out of the box. <laughs> he could only go to first base. There was no, he was not advancing past that. And they were like, great hustle vladdy like like and it's it's kind of there's an underlying frustration and i get some of the vladdy discourse but like just overall there's like an underlying like i'm really upset they might not win a world series and Mm -hmm. i i I think that's like kind of deep in everyone's kind of in the pit of their stomach yeah and i think you know we and you didn't do this here like it's reasonable to be most kinds of fan not any kind of fan but like most however you want to approach it whatever your perspective is you know is fair like there's the there's the character in major league the ah they'll blow it in the playoffs guy (laughs) right who is so the well is so poisoned that he can't possibly come back until they do the thing like that's within a reasonable bound Mm -hmm. still so uh i get it to that degree And, and the vlad one you know i will say those guys probably saw the two instances over the weekend Correct. and heard uh you know Various heard the people. broadcast talking about it heard john schneider talking about it and and then it's like pure confirmation by the way. like then you're looking for it exactly um but yeah it, there is a you know and maybe frustration's not even the word but attention that yeah. that is there and, and you know like they've won five of their last six and this they haven't won six of seven since early July yeah, and they could do that today. And it doesn't feel that way because again, like they're scraping by bad teams or taking seven innings to get offense going against the team. Um, you can even, you know, same kind of thing with the turnaround in runners and scoring positions that they went five for 13 with runners and scoring position yesterday. They have the best batting average in those situations in the league over the last five weeks. And it doesn't feel that way because those stats have sometimes come, you know, in bunches when a game's not out of hand or they've come against lesser teams or whatever. And, you know, again, there's no right or, or wrong way to fan them except the way that I do it. And yeah, there's like a, <laughs> a there's a, a real example. tension with yeah. all of these things. I think the risk stuff is a classic example because I think I feel like if there wasn't that underlying frustration that we wouldn't care about the nitty gritty details of the risk numbers. We would just be happy that they're hitting with risk, especially after the start to the season. We'd <laughs> just be like, yes, thank you for leading the league in batting average with runners in scoring position in August or wherever. It's they objectively were. a good thing yeah, to like, do. <laughs> let's just be happy with it. But like when there's that underlying frustration and underlying kind of friction tension of where this is all going, I feel like that we all tend to dive in and find reasons why we shouldn't believe. And it's, and this is like a long conversation. We could get into the impact of social media and how to best get engagement on social media and all that. But that's probably a longer conversation. Bad puns yes. is uh, <laughs> is what you do. Although 
there were some people not happy with my Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Luka Doncic puns during that Canada-Slovenia game. I was driving, so I missed it's that. Just, they're not very good ones. You you missed the... I got to rewatch it to watch in a little more detail later, but it was very fun to, uh, to half pay attention to, uh, and they're headed to the semis now. So, uh, okay. So in terms of, you know, we could take the social media out of it. I do wonder, you know, we can kind of craft our own narratives with these things after the fact, but I also think we can project once we're this far into the season and we have a read on the, the fan base and the energy around the team that we do. I think we can pretty safely project a couple paths forward and all of those paths take a hard lane on a fork in the road with this Texas series. And yeah, sure. The Jays could lose today and lose two of three of the Royals. And maybe the Texas series doesn't feel as big, but anything short of that, they're going to head in this series basically in control of their own destiny. And that will be the biggest series that they play this season, probably given where we are in the standings and what we know about Toronto and Texas and what the wild card race looks like. When you reflect on everything you just said and the thread you had yesterday, and you look ahead to a series like this four gamer against the Rangers, uh, man, I guess just like how excited are you for this year? There's like, there's obviously going to be a small element of you, me and Mike Petriello sitting in the upper media area during the second wildcard game of, Oh, this is so exciting, but, but also this is so exciting. It really is. Like I've, um, I don't normally do this and there's baseball is a daily sport. So you honestly can't prepare for a series too much in advance. There's some stuff you could do, but literally I was, Flying home from, where was I? Denver. I was flying home from Denver on Monday morning. And it was, I got up at 5 a.m. or something. And I was literally on my laptop, like, preparing for that Ranger series. And, like, once I was doing that, I stopped myself in the moment. I was like, okay, I'm a little jacked up for this series. Like, I probably need to dial this back a little bit. And that's when you kind of get into a moment where you show up on the day of with probably too much prepared. And then your crew kind of resents you and they're all like slow down so at least it's a four gamer so yeah. you've got one extra opportunity to get correct. that stuff in correct we can we, yeah that, that allows the producer to chill out a bit um knowing he can get all the stuff in but but, but yeah. i was doing that a little bit too yesterday um james and to on twitter who who tweets out a bunch of good stats stuff he, he kind of laid out what the jays rotation could look like for that series and i laid out what the rangers rotation currently projected like and then like 20 minutes later, someone else, uh, Madossum uh, on Twitter is like, hey, uh, I don't know about this because Dane Dunning's coming out of the bullpen because Nate Uvalde's getting absolutely shelled right now. It's like, oh, the six-man rotation with a bunch of giant question marks might now be a five-man with Martin Perez and Dane Dunning in the bullpen and Nate Uvalde on a very short leash and who knows how they juggle things now around an off day because everything's must win for them too. So when we look at the Thursday off day for the Blue Jays and we're like, oh, mercifully, you know, they can stay on rotation. Everyone gets a one-day breather. Texas might have to play the, we need some wins and we need Max Scherzer to pitch as soon as possible every single time through. And Blake needs to see John Gray in person and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate your enthusiasm for prepping for that series, but I wouldn't get too far ahead. Yeah, I, it's going to be... It's going to be really, really exciting. I do really like the Rangers' offense. I really don't like their pitching. But it's just, to me, it's going to be the vibe in the building. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're, we've spent, this is the most I've spent ever on this show, not diving into numbers or anything like that. But, like, to me, that series is going to be about, is there a buzz in the building at 6.45, at 7 o'clock, at, you know, when they take the field in the top of the first. And I do think there is going to be, it's not going to be playoff buzz, but there were some, you know, it reminds me of, there was the Sunday 
in was it a Sunday? I don't remember the final game of the season in 2021 where they needed to win. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of stuff that Baltimore needed to series. Happen. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of stuff that needed to happen. And there was a buzz in the building that day. And that's kind of, that's what I'm most excited for, to be honest is like, yeah, every pitch is going to matter everything, but the buzz in that crowd, cause the crowd's been awesome this year. Um, it's been packed. It's been, people are showing up early. People are buying beers. The vibe is, is really, really good. But I feel like that, the vibe's been good for almost like social reasons in some respects at the ballpark, which is still great. But I feel like that is going to be the first series that really feels like, hey, let's dial in. Yeah, it, it really does. And obviously the attendance numbers have been terrific. The Jays are second in the American League to only the New York Yankees. But as a heads up, there are still some tickets available for those Rangers games. And I don't know if we're giving them away for the Rangers series or the Royal series, but we're giving away tickets to some upcoming home games tomorrow on the show. So uh, if you are getting excited for that Rangers series, uh, you can listen tomorrow for some free tickets. And oh, by the way, the Red Sox are here the weekend after that. So obviously not the best Red Sox team we've ever seen, but on the periphery of the wildcard race. And even if they're not, you're telling me that team wouldn't want to come in here and try to spoil the Blue Jays wildcard push in Toronto. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be a, a pretty fun 10 game stretch there. And then we're, then we're almost at the finish line from there. It's all just Yankees and Rays after that. Yeah. It's interesting looking at the schedule for all four teams. It really does feel like Houston has a pretty good path Mm -hmm. to kind of they've got one series with seattle left uh one series the second last series of the season i i was looking at this earlier um yeah seattle and texas they especially seattle they've got a tough stretch like Mm -hmm. they've got seattle's got tampa coming up and then they finish texas houston texas so that's also like partly why i've always felt kind of confident that if the jays just kind of keep it on the rails that mm-hmm. they're gonna that they were always gonna find themselves in even not maybe all the way down through this uh slow period but just because of that schedule because of how many games seattle and texas have against each mm-hmm. other like it's always felt like it's in toronto's hands to right kind of because if their- one of those teams goes six and oh then you're probably in and if those teams go three and three then you well hey four and two or five and one although easier said than done against the Rays. We're also heading for a scenario potentially where that last series of the season, it doesn't matter to the Rays. I feel like it won't. They're they're just close enough to the division right yeah. now that you know we'll we'll see and I don't know if they play the Orioles again down the stretch here. Um, yeah, and then it's you know on the Texas side they've got a couple easier series sprinkled in like they've got Oakland this weekend before they come here and then they've got the Angels sandwiched in between those Mariners series. So I mean they might be looking at those last nine games of the series of okay three against the corpse of the angels and six against the Mariners. But yeah, that team's got to be feeling, I mean, we've talked about the urgency of the blue Jays at some times when they've lost like five of 10, like the Jays season has not been defined by any sustained stretch of losing or winning. And that's kind of been the, the frustrating part is and Arden and I joked last week, you go four and three every week. No one's happy with the team. You win 90 games and yeah. then you make the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. It's been a weird, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was talking to someone about the team, like, is anyone having a, like, I, I haven't even looked at this. I, I was planning to, but I got busy. Like, I guess Bichette's leading in wins above replacement. Like, I'm not even sure exactly. But, like, to me, this season, especially if they make the playoffs, and I think they will, to me, this season is going to be defined by, like, the depth of their team. Like, they're not just the 26-man roster, but the 40-man. Like, having, and obviously this 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 point is kind of front of mind right now when it's guys like Horwitz and Schneider doing what they're doing. But like, I just feel like, and we've talked about this before. I've always kind of wanted, or a couple of years ago, 
we were hoping to get to a point where the Jays had a 40-man like the Dodgers yes. or like a team like that where everyone could contribute. There are two ways to be a really good baseball team. The first one is having no bad players. The second one is having really great players. And this year, the Jays have been more of a no bad players. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like like when I looked at kind of the American League before the season, like when you looked at the Yankees, you realized how dependent they were on Aaron Judge being Aaron Judge mm-hmm. and having a year similar to what he had last year. The Jays weren't like they weren't built like that. They could withstand a down year from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, put it this way. So I just brought the numbers up when you mentioned it. Yes, Bo Bichette's leading in war. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is 11th on this team among position players and wins above replacement. Yep. Show me how many teams could have had their, maybe not their best player, but one of their very best players. And one of the guys that you had, like certainly a four-win expectation for, drops off and is a barely above replacement level player overall. There's another way of looking at it. Two years ago, Manoa and Guerrero gave you like eight wins. Yeah. Last year, they gave you seven wins. This year, you've gotten zero, maybe one. Like, again, withstanding that, like, yeah, it has been a frustrating season for a whole bunch of reasons. (laughs) But it's, to me, this season marks, like, the first time you've seen, hey, they've got guys who can contribute. They've got guys waiting in Buffalo that can come up and help. They've got a 40-man that is ready to contribute. Now, does that win you a World Series? Who knows? But I mean, hey, it's... Certainly better than playing bad players in playoff games. <laughs> you can at least say it won't be, you know, look, I I don't think Mason McCoy is going to be on the playoff roster or, or in no. any kind of role. Maybe as a pinch runner extraordinaire. I don't think so. You talked about the depth of the 40 man. You talked about some of those young names who have come up and contributed. There will be a bit of a crunch coming. Bobachek could be back this weekend, possibly as soon as Friday. We don't have a latest Matt Chapman update. He'll be back at some point. And then, hey, come wildcard time. Roster shrink a little bit. Let's uh, take a break and then let's kick around what that could look like. Some of those decisions are pretty straightforward and we're a couple weeks early on other ones. But like I said to Caitlin earlier, you're allowed to have what if playoff roster discussions when you're half a game up. You're not allowed if you're, ha- we wouldn't have this conversation no, if they lost yesterday. Yeah, it would be insane, but they're up to, they're back up to like 69% in the fan graph odds. So uh, there you go. <laughs> we, we can do it. We'll take a break. Chris Black stays with us as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, I'm Blake Murphy. Chris Black still with us here, producer at Sportsnet, at Down to Black on Twitter. That's a little REM. For him, we almost missed it because we were talking about Raptors basketball uh, during the break. We, we had to take a break from Blue Jays baseball to talk about Raptors basketball. Why did you want REM again? Uh, because I've totally, I'm all in on the bear. Oh, yes. As a show this summer. And uh, they've used REM quite effectively. Yeah, it's a pretty good season. soundtrack. It's That's right. Really so good. it's a well-scored show. Wilco, REM, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've. I've, of course, you're a Wilco guy. Uh, no, I, to be honest, like I haven't been a Wilco guy in the past. But when I heard it, I get, and again, they use it really effectively. Uh, they use music really effectively in that show. I've kind of, I've, I've taken a dive back into REM, and I've taken a dive back into Wilco a little bit. Um, there is a really good lyric. On, there's a, a band called Dizzy, um, who are from Oshawa, and they have what I think so far is the album of the year. Come and, on, Oshawa band? Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and they have a, a great lyric on the new album about like 
being around like it's more detailed than that but like being around someone who is like going down a wilco rabbit hole <laughs> with yankee hotel foxtrot it's uh it's good i'll send you the link to it uh after but that is for after for right now we have some more Blue Jays stuff to discuss. We're going to do some roster machinations here, but I had two quick ones for you from last night's game and not to nitpick a game in which they won 7-1 and most of the things offensively went well, but it's important that when we're talking about managerial decisions that we don't just completely ignore the ones that happen or don't happen and they win the game and it's they score seven runs at inning. It's in, We got to look at all of them. And there were two in this game that, uh, or I guess, yeah, two, we'll call them managerial decisions. There were two in this game I, I wanted your take on. The first one was, this is, I guess, more a base coach decision. But Santiago Espinal is not a fast runner. He is nope. one of the slowest middle infielders by sprint speed uh, in baseball. He has a slightly positive base running value overall, but a lot of that is like he doesn't push it because he knows he's a little slower. He did not run on Seth Brown, who not only has a 32nd percentile arm and only one outfield assist on the year, but is like the king of I took a bad route and angle to this ball, so I'm not even in position to throw this ball uh what did you think of, of espinal not running on that one in the moment i was confused um i dove in i looked at a bunch of his outfield assists over the course of his career his only outfield assist this year i was gonna was say are a, those on vhs the last time he <laughs> threw a guy out uh the only assist this year was on a throw to second base which is like generally speaking the easiest throw yeah what are you out, doing running yeah like the easiest throw an outfielder can make um it was it was a 50, maybe a 60-40 probably should have sent based on the depth, based on the arm, based on Espinal. That's kind of where I, and I think if you were to ask them, the thought process would have been against a bad team like the A's, let's skew on the side of conservative and let's hope we'll that get we more opportunities and we'll score more runs. Um, it didn't work out that way that inning and it felt, it felt uh, disastrous is too strong of a word, but it, it ominous. Fe it felt like a really, it felt like a worse decision uh, in retrospect. But yeah, like I probably would have sent him, especially given the outfielder. But I feel like their decisions in that game or the sack fly decision was based probably a lot on who they were playing. And I think that that is going to be your answer for the other one. <laughs> but we had another scenario where, and again, we talked about the non-pinch run for Alejandro Kirk as the not tying run, but the run to cut the lead to one the other week. And there was one in this game, top of the seventh. They they had a zero on the board. It was 0-0. Zero, zero. Kirk walks, Biggio walks. So Kirk is the runner on second base. That is the go-ahead run. You have not scored in six innings. They opt not to pinch run for him. Uh, it ends up being more than fine because... Espinal walks and then they end up putting up a sixth spot that inning. I think Kirk even gets up again. Yeah, Kirk walked another time in that, that inning. inning. So obviously that swells. Um, now, given the way John Schneider talked about that decision, the way we all analyzed that non-decision last time, uh, I think we'd mostly agree that tie game, runner on second, nobody out, slowest runner, seventh inning or later, and you have a backup catcher still available, you probably pinch run for Kirk there. That to me said, it's Oakland. We're playing for the big inning here. I exactly I agree with you there like I didn't feel in that moment it didn't feel the same as the previous whatever example that was last week it didn't feel the same to me and I know um I didn't have the volume on super high it was on quiet because it was late at night and I had kids and a wife sleeping upstairs but it was I, I could hear a little bit of discussion I saw some of the online uh discussion about it it didn't feel the same to me and I think I also think it's one of those, and this comes up in baseball, I think, and I think, like, we all need to acknowledge this. Like, 
I think there's valid reasons on both sides. Like, if yeah. you were to say, I think you should have pinch run there, yeah, you might be right. And if you were to say, no, I don't think they needed to, uh, yeah, I think you could be right too. Like, not every – I think that's part of what I really like about this sport is mm. there are there are different views. And it, a lot of it has to do with how aggressive you feel in moments like that or how much faith you have in the rest of your team. So, yeah, it felt – I was okay with that one. for sure. Yeah, all I really look for with those things is like, again, because they can go either way, is like, let's have a consistency of decision-making. Let's make sure it's not all feel-based. But even within that consistency, there is an element of we are facing some Oakland Athletics bullpen jabroni and <laughs> no no offense to it was Sam Neal, I think his name was, that was in at that point. Zach Neal um, was in at that point. And then, uh, yeah, then you are Sam Long. That's what I had. There you go. Z- right. Zach Neal and Sam Long. I had their, hey, we're a jobber on WWE Velocity team name <laughs> mixed up there. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a bet on your team being able to put together a bigger inning there. I, um, you know, if that was the ninth inning, I think you're you're absolutely pinch running there because you got to get it. Um, okay, so some other managerial slash front office decisions are coming. I'm sure these are collaborative, but the office will have the final say. There'll be a roster crunch in the coming days. Bobochet will be back this weekend. It sounds like, and there's even hope it could be Friday. Uh, I think it's great, by the way, that you could get him into a couple of these Kansas City games uh, before that big Texas series. Sure. No update on Matt Chapman recently. Danny Jansen seeing a specialist in Pennsylvania today, so no real update there. Although Jansen's a nice, tidy one. Heineman out, Jansen in whenever Jansen is, is ready. On the position player side, are we in agreement that it would be Mason McCoy currently the odd man out for Bobochette? Yes. Okay, so... Now, Matt Chapman comes back. There is an odd man out roster-wise, and there is a difficult navigation with Kevin Biggio and David Schneider both hitting really well right now. How do you manage that? I don't know, to be honest. Um, this is early for me in the answer to use Dan Schulman's catchphrase. These things have a way of working themselves out? These things out. do have a way of working themselves out. I think it's a hard decision. I also think it'll be fluid. Um, I think... Belt's situation warrants monitoring. I, I think there could be maybe an IL stint. That's based on no inside knowledge. Oh, he's been sick the last two days, yeah, not, no, not the back sick. thing. Yeah, no, but you just, like, who knows? Like, they, yeah. might, they, who knows what they might do? I mean, but, yeah, they're not ergonomic chairs when you're dealing yeah, with what he's dealing exactly. with. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I just, I, they've got, I think this is one of those good problems to mm-hmm. have in that the guys towards the back end of their roster are playing well and contributing. It's, yes... As everyone, as sorry, I shouldn't say everyone, as certain sections of uh, Blue Jays fandom likes to remind me, it is against poor competition. They're playing well against the teams that are put in front of them um, in terms of these players. So um, I would, if we've learned anything from the decisions they've made recently, it's that I feel like they probably lean towards, quote, their guys, the guys who have been with them. So I feel like that probably means a guy like Espinal is safe. Is safe. But I don't know. Like, I, I honestly think these guys in Buffalo are, or these guys who have come up from Buffalo are making decisions hard for them. And honestly, like, that's all you want from them. I think it's, like I said, I think regular season, it's going to be fluid and things are going to work themselves out. But I think it's a more interesting conversation come a potential wildcard round. So, yeah, the the Matt Chapman, let's say Matt Chapman comes back Monday or something like that. Yeah, you can make a case for a couple of guys, you know, based on the entire season, maybe Aspinall's the odd guy out. But like you said, the whole, se- um, the the everything they've done tells us that 
hey, it's they op, they DFA'd Paul DeYoung instead of optioning Santiago Espinal for just a small window of time because they value Espinal or, or they keep telling us they value Espinal. And they've kind of been proven right. And he, he started he started to play a little better yeah. the last couple of weeks. And DeYoung is not. No, he is like three for a billion <laughs> since that opening game with the uh, with the Giants. Shocker. Um, okay, so and then you know if it's not Espinal, you could make a case for. Spencer Horowitz, because even though he's very good and the approach is advanced and he's had some good moments, the path to actual role is really difficult. Your Brandon Belt is your lefty first base slash DH. He may be your pinch hit specialist. Maybe they prefer Ernie Clement as a, a more versatile piece, someone who could pinch run, play shortstop in a pinch, things like that. We'll see. There is also a scenario. You mentioned wildcard roster, and we'll, we'll do this way more detailed uh, as we get closer to that if the Blue Jays are in a position for it, but there is also, through that, an argument to be made that not in an ALDS situation, but in a three-game wildcard situation where you're down to three starters, so you have either bumped starters to the bullpen or left them off the wildcard roster. The Tampa Bay Rays did this last year. Could you get there with a 14-position player wildcard roster? I think you can, but it's, to me, a question like that is really about the team's preferences mm -hmm. and how much how many bullets they want in the bullpen versus um, the flexibility they want with an added roster spot. And it's, it, I don't know, like when you look at the roster, your first instinct is I feel like they're going to take an extra position player because they do have guys playing well. That, But then when I, when I say it and when I look at it, it feels reactionary to the moment we're in right now mm -hmm. to how well certain guys are hitting right, right now. Is and, there any Clement going to be hitting 400 still three weeks yeah, from now? I don't, Probably, but <laughs> like, and it's interesting because I do, like, I feel like some of the options they'll have on the back end of their pitching roster can go multiple innings, mm -hmm. which actually makes it maybe more likely that they could take an extra position player. But I do think, like, that is, in terms of postseason minutia and diving into those nitty-gritty details, like, that is going to be the interesting conversation mm -hmm. if the position players kind of stay in this kind of setup and kind of are all playing reasonably well is like, do you take, you know, do you need to deal with two of Biggio Espinal, Schneider, Horwitz, Clement, two of those guys not being on the roster? Mm -hmm. Or do you just want one of them not being on the roster? Or look, this is hyper specificity, but in a wild card situation, are two of those guys not on the roster and it's someone else in yeah. that spot? Because we haven't seen Mason McCoy run the bases really yet. Uh, he's he been a pinch runner, home, yeah. and, and he has he has good numbers in the minor leagues with taking the extra base and stealing bases. But you know, I'll mention him just the last time I'll mention him. Like I, I would have thought, had Bo Bichette not been injured, I, I think that extra forty man move they made would have gotten Cam Eden on the roster because he's forty eight for fifty two stealing bases, and yep. he's their best defensive outfielder according to you know scouts and people within the organization and stuff like that. Um, so there's a pinch running utility that they haven't. You know, none of these guys that we've mentioned, well, Horowitz is slow, but like Clement is not slow. David Schneider, they have pinch ran for, but you don't have to pinch run for that guy. It's just, it's a little weird because they would have a bench that is extra deep and has extra options but no defensively and pinch hitting, but no yeah. obvious pinch running guy. Yeah. And that's just something they don't have really. And that's just, not everyone has that. Like, but I do, that is something that I like just personally well they've officially lost the whit merrifield trade then because samad taylor could be that guy <laughs> exactly like I, I just i i like having the the utility of it i liked dalton pompey in that role i really enjoyed him that, in oh, that, that was, role in 15, it was 16. amazing yeah just go on and go steal a base yeah like, get into scoring position um 
Like, I don't think it's a necessary thing to have. Well, on a postseason roster, I think it's a nice thing to mm-hmm. have on a postseason roster. And it would certainly be nice if one of these guys you had on the roster for other utility also had that. And this is also, you know, this is a little bit, look, they have to win these games. You can't manage these games in a way that does anything other than try to win them. But they have not been a very aggressive base stealing team rather relative to the rest of the league. So there's a little bit of, well, you don't even know with some of these guys base stealing. But also, like a lot of their roster building and roster moves and decisions have told us they put much more value on the first to third, second to home kind of stuff than just go steal a base. Yeah, Um, I think that's like more conservative base running, mm -hmm. like an idea of you can still extract some value but not be at the risk of as many outs, even though they've kind of had some outs, especially earlier in the year, but a little better lately. If they were to go a 14-man position player roster, that would obviously mean one less pitcher. Um, Part of that is easy because you only need three starters over three games there. All of those starters, except for Yusei Kikuchi, if they were not starting a wildcard game, I think you'd probably leave off the wildcard roster. You tell them, hey, Chris Bassett, You've been really good for us. We needed that win the last day of the regular season, but we're not going to use you out of the bullpen. Stay off the roster. Get ready for ALDS game one or something like that. Uh, I, I'm i not sure. I don't know. Here's the here's the only reason why I'm hesitating. Ryu's been really, really good against lefties this year. Mm-hmm. As good as he's ever been. He's changed, obviously, small sample. He's changed some of his usage against them. And one of the biggest things he's changed, and this is kind of just being a little preamble to his start today is he's thrown a lot of early count curveballs against mm-hmm. lefties. He's thrown that thing slower than he ever has. The big loopy. It's, it's ridiculous, beautiful. I love man. it. I've, I've, he's was, like borderline Zach Greinke territory now where I think he's just like, like he's turning around and looking at the reading yeah, to I, see how much break he got on. Yeah. And I, I was a big Barry Zito guy back in the day, the big loopy curveball. So like, and yes, he hasn't really come out of the pen before. I think it'd be an only hyper specific examples, but I'm not sure like if it's two, you've got to have you've got to be prepared for a three game series. Mm-hmm. You're two unused guys. You know, is it Barrios and Ryu? It's it's likely Ryu and somebody. Um, if it's Ryu and Kikuchi, you probably don't need Ryu. But if Kikuchi goes in that slot, then maybe you have both Barrios and Ryu in the bullpen. I, I'm I don't know. I just like his ability with that big curveball to get lefties mm-hmm. out. But here's the thing we don't, like, this is asymmetrical knowledge. Like, we don't know if he can even throw out of a bullpen. Like, come in relief in a game. We don't know these things. Yeah. They know, so they'll make that call. But I I don't, what I'm saying is, I guess, I could see some utility for him in the bullpen. Okay. Um, anyway, th- that the pitching side of things is a little more straightforward. And, and Eric Swanson threw a bullpen yesterday here in Toronto. Uh, he'll be back at some point. I would, would we be in agreement that, that Jay Jackson's first man out at this point? I think so, because I, I really like what Me Francis too, has been doing. He looks good. I really like just, like, this is one of those things that isn't quantifiable and is just anecdotal. But, like, when I'm on the road with the team, when I'm, and this is kind of the nature of his role. Like, he's out there on his own early, putting in his own work. He does a lot of, like, plyometric stuff. He's, like, he just seems like he's, putting in the work results are coming he's confident out there and his like just all of his stuff just looks really good obviously it's low leverage and all that but like just there's i think there's but lots of low re- leverage but he's also like you haven't pitched for a week and hey go get us three yeah, not innings. easy to perform well and i'm yeah. just there's lots of reasons to be really yeah. optimistic about also, him. there are 425 pitchers in baseball this year who have thrown 30 innings or more 
is the 19th lowest walk rate. Yeah. At a 425. Yeah, like I he's in the mix. Like come next year. This he's is in where the mix I was gonna for, go next. Yeah. SP five. Yeah, like he's in the mix for a starter spot next year. He's earned that consideration and come spring training next year. Like he's gonna be on that chart of who could be on in their rotation next year for sure. And he's earned it. Yeah. Or I mean, hey, and if he doesn't earn it, like look, ideally he has options. He'd be at a, he'd be at triple A as your sixth starter because we saw this year how important it is to have one of those guys but also i don't know if trevor richards has graduated the leverage do you really value a multi-inning guy who could be an opener type in your major league bullpen that's obviously a way down the line uh consideration but all that is to say at least on the pitching side with some of these decisions it's a little more straightforward what's going to happen when eric swanson's back maybe a little less so for wild card rosters but we'll get there when we get there uh i have one more quick one for you the Blue Jays are playing Alejandro Kirk at catcher a lot. Uh, Tyler Heineman is up, and he's going to get the starts when Alejandro Kirk can't get the starts. Is there a scenario you could see playing out where we see Dalton Varsho behind the plate? Yeah, we were – when did that come up? I was – maybe on the Sunday did they pinch hit for Heineman? Yeah, Heineman played on Sunday. Mm-hmm. and They pinch they, it early for him. Yeah, they pinch it early for him, and that came up in conversation with us. And, yeah, it, I – I wouldn't be surprised if there's an inning or two at some point in the next couple of weeks where we see him at catcher. I'd be interested. I, I do think like the ship's kind of sailed in terms of him being a, you know, 15 or 20 game catcher guy, which we were kind of excited about. I, mean, I was, it was so, part of the value proposition of that trade, yeah. right? Was he was your third catcher. Yeah. You saw some things when you dove into his work behind the plate, you saw some kind of reasons why he wasn't going to be a, a long-term catcher, but yeah, like I think the ship has sailed on him being a 20-game guy. But, yeah, I certainly think it wouldn't be over the realm of possibility to see him kind of behind the dish at some point. It would be, uh, be a fun something one. Something fun. Yeah, who or knows? A Casey Maybe. series or something like that. Yeah, so you certainly don't want to do it in a big, big leverage spot. But, no. look, if you're making those substitutions, it means you're in a leverage spot uh, at some point. Anyway, uh, we have like one minute left here. Hyunjin Ryu starting today against Oakland. I, I don't know that anyone cares for the J.P. Sears breakdown, and we don't have a Jays lineup yet. Uh, but what are you looking for from Ryu other than that curveball? You you fascinated on the on the sinker right now? Um, no, it's more so changeup. Okay. Um, he was season low changeup usage last start. I think that has a lot to do with Colorado. Um, mm. Where there's some interesting. I'm actually gonna even though they're done at Coors Field, I kind of we kind of learned some things there um, about how how pitches move in that place that I'm going to do a thread on at some point. But the A's are very, very bad just in general, obviously. But they might be the worst uh, in terms of what they're really, really bad at. They might be the worst at hitting changeups. Mm. Um, they are, since 2008, 169th worst against spin, 23rd, like the 2023 yeah. athletics, 23rd worst versus fastballs. And seventh worst versus changeups. They're really bad against off speed. They're just real bad. They're they're just in general really bad. But in general, also like bad teams don't tend to hit changeups well. They don't tend to see it well. So I do expect, even though season low usage last start, I expect lots of changeups today for a Ryu. All right, uh, Hyunjin Ryu against JP Sears, lefty on lefty, three thirty seven first pitch. Thank you to Chris Black, sportsnet producer at Down to Black on Twitter. Thanks to Kayla McGrath. 
thanks to Matt Haig, the Buffalo Bisons hitting coach. Uh, Gunning McKee coming up next because of the early start. Show Ali has you for Jay's talk pregame, 3 to 3.30, and then Blair and Barker take over uh, their usual slot slash Jay's talk until whenever they run out of gas uh, later. Thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Thanks to Canada Basketball for winning that game by enough that I didn't melt down on air and for having a start time that doesn't overlap with my show on Friday. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Have a good Wednesday.